Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as an investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. to believe that we're already in August, but time does fly when you're in, uh, in crypto every day. Jason, you took a week off. I did. It you, was, don't ever, uh, you don't ever take time off. <laughs> well, you, know, you try to, but uh, things things definitely get in the way sometimes. But yeah, it was nice. Got to spend some time down at the beach and then spend a little time up in the mountains. So kind of a nice way to, uh, to unplug. I am actually off this week, but I hopped on just for this special occasion. Jack, we empathize. <laughs> there really is no vacation from crypto. But that said, we do have uh, Parth who is out this week. So, uh, well, he's not. Out. He's also not out. He's he's at a hackathon. So you know, he's he's coding away. Yeah, <laughs> he's not physically here, present with us. That's Parth's idea of a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> Damn jokes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we can jump in. So, Jason, I'll uh, I'll hand it off to you to tee up the first story. Awesome. Thank you. As we look back at this past week, we jokingly typically say that it's a slow week in crypto, but actually this was a relatively slow week in crypto. Um, we had a lot going on, but we're looking at some of the volatility in the markets seemingly um, bringing in a, a relative range, not quite as wide a diversity as we'd been seeing previously. And I actually saw a headline earlier today, two headlines. One, uh, Bitcoin had uh, its best month in July since last October. And then also I saw a headline I haven't dug into yet was mentioned that open interest in Ethereum futures may now be exceeding open interest in Bitcoin futures. And that's probably attributable to the upcoming merge or presumed merge date of uh, mid-September. But Jack, there's a lot of other things that are going on here in the macro perspective. And I, I know you'd look into this quite a bit. So what, what do you think? Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on. Although, you know, crypto markets independent news has been a little bit quiet over the past week. I would say that a lot of things have maybe changed over the past month and a half, uh, where investors really did see like a risk off environment uh, through traditional markets, as well as crypto markets, and sort of projected that forward in large part, I think there was a lot of fear. Um, and things have sort of balanced out or, or bounced for the time being. And if we go back maybe to like, to mid June, end of June, yeah, that environment was one where within crypto markets, we saw you know, asset freezing across lending desks. We saw what we now know was a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin being sold by a corporate treasury, right? That was Tesla. We, we found out about two weeks ago. Uh, we had 
you know, lending desks like Genesis and BlockFi having to, to liquidate a large counterparty, Three Arrows Capital, who, you know, has since filed for bankruptcy. But there were, you know, multiple billions worth of GBTC, Grayscale's Bitcoin trust, uh, as well as just straight up Bitcoin that was being liquidated all during that time period where broader macro was really risk off. And we saw it in, in price action. There was, you know, liquidation candles where the price would just cap down. Uh, seemingly with no buyer there, but that was because there were all of these four sellers. Uh, and now I think you're sort of in a different spot at the moment, right? And and maybe we can relate this back to some of the the existing traditional macro as well. And, and Jack, when you when you say that that you know we're seeing the risk off, there's actually been a higher correlation than than typically had been, or we've seen the past year there's been a higher correlation between crypto and other risk assets. But uh, I think. We're probably seeing that on the upside as well. I, I saw something earlier today. So NASDAQ is up about 16% since mid-June. Don't know how that compares to some of the crypto assets or other markets you're looking at, but I, I tend to watch the, the 10-year treasury yield. It seems like that's had quite a significant move uh, in the face of rising interest rates from the Fed. I'm, I'm wondering if you're seeing other correlations or could maybe opine on that. Yeah, totally. And so if we go back to that period of time again, that you know, mid to late June time period, where all of this crypto carnage was being had, you know, you had the ten-year, as you point out, reaching a peak of of three and a half percent. That's now down nearly a hundred basis points. I think it's down ninety basis points of the the time that we're speaking, down to you know, two point six percent. You had forty-year high CPI prints, and granted, you know, the last print we had was still you know a hot CPI print, but we're starting to see things like the price of oil had peaked at one hundred and 25-ish dollars a barrel back then, you know, that price is now sub $100 today. Uh, you're starting to see things like inventory builds being noted by large retailers. Uh, and then we had, you know, the all-important FOMC meeting last week, where the expectation going into that, that morning was a 74% chance of a 75 basis point rate hike. And that's what happened. And I don't think that that's what the important piece of that day was. It was really Powell's press conference afterwards at 2.30 Eastern, where he really started to shift his tone. And we've been talking for a while of, do you get some sort of a soft landing? Do you get some sort of a pivot? And that is where sort of maybe markets end up bottoming or rallying off of. And I think we saw a shift in tone or this sort of softer tone where a lot of this CPI data is backwards looking. And although it is scary numbers that are pushing double digits, you're starting to see in the data that is more forwards looking, tips, break evens, used car sales, uh, inventories that I had mentioned, all of these are sort of leaning towards the exact opposite on a, a go forward basis. And it seems like the Fed is, is sort of realizing that and trying to balance, of course, their, their dual mandate of employment and inflation. Uh, and so we have a, this period of time where we're not going to have another FOMC meeting for another roughly two months. And so, you know, there, there was this talk of being more data dependent going forward, not putting it on autopilot and just automatically raising 50, 75, 100 basis points. And markets, you know, did rally into the end of last week. And I think partially as a result of sort of this softer tone or, or stance um, from, you know, the central bank. I think what I'm trying to figure out is, so based on what you're saying, right, the clouds seem to be clearing a bit. The question is, is whether are we heading into the eye of the storm or is the storm over? 
right? And I think if we could predict the future, of course, you know, the world would be a much different place, right? So we we can't say definitively one way or the other. But if you zoom out, right, Jack, and you look at all kind of the macro factors, what do you think on that? Do you think we are through the storm? Or do you think there's a possibility that with, you know, there's there's because I guess from my perspective, right, there still feels like there's quite a bit of uncertainty kind of across the markets, you know, especially when we think about kind of geopolitically what's happening in the world. Investors don't love uncertainty, right? Generally speaking, whether you're in the traditional markets or in the crypto markets. And so do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's what makes markets so interesting, right? Is that nobody's going to be able to predict what that future holds. And I think there's valid arguments. That's why, you know, asset prices are trading where they are today is because, you know, there's people on both sides of those trades, you know, in disagreement there. One thing that I would throw in there, and we haven't really talked much about before though, is the the relative strength of the U.S. dollar, right? So when you think about the um, FX markets, you saw uh, essentially a parity with the Euro. And, you know, with the rising interest rates from the Federal Open Market Committee, helping to strengthen the dollar. Now we're starting to see central banks around the globe uh, increasing interest rates. You know, we had ECB raise. Now we're, I read something this morning about Bank of England uh, projected to raise rates. And, and when you think about that, what's the relative trade? So people can, you know, who were seeking yield a year ago or for some time, couldn't really find it. Now they're finding uh, some potential in relatively risk-free assets that are government issued debt instruments. What do we think? You know, it, it's a situation where rising interest rates, are they good for crypto? Are they bad for crypto? Do we even know? Yeah, I don't think we know. But I do think what we've seen historically, and I actually wrote a tweet thread about this. Uh, we are, you know, Fidelity Digital Assets Research Desk wrote a piece the end uh, fall of last year, September, uh, called Getting Off Zero. It was about you know, the investment thesis around Bitcoin and traditional portfolios. And one of those pillars that people often have is Bitcoin as this idea of like digital gold. And we'll use Bitcoin as a proxy for like crypto as a whole, right? But this idea that it could act as a store of value. And when you think of, okay, well, do rising interest rates, you know, lowering interest rates, what is the impact there? And I think when we use gold as the analog and like the historical data that we have on Bitcoin, we can see that you know, Bitcoin has seemed to act historically as a you know, liquidity black hole in some sense, where when you have quantitative easing, when you have market easing, you know, the price of Bitcoin responds well. And when you have quantitative tightening or you have liquidity tightening taken away from the system, you know, the price of Bitcoin did what it did over the last six months when you had, you know, the Fed tightening. And so I think that there's that one aspect. And then the other aspect would be like inflation, right? And the, the response to inflation. And people have been saying this narrative around, well, Bitcoin's not an inflation hedge because, you know, you have 40 year high CPI data and the price of Bitcoin is down. What's up with that? And I think we look back at gold and it's like, well, gold has never really been the perfect inflation hedge. It's more so been a hedge for forward looking real interest rates or financial repression, right? And, and what, we, what I mean by that is really inflation plus the change in, in nominal yields going forward, right? And what you've had is an, an increase in like, if you look at 10 year tips as a proxy for forward real interest rates, financial conditions have tightened and you know, that's a net negative. And so I think it's not just interest rates on the, you know, in and of themselves, it's interest rates on a forward basis, with inflation expectations on a forward basis being baked into that. And we've seen a tightening of the system, which has been a net negative for crypto markets. 
which is a great way to break it down. But I think candidly, we all have to just acknowledge we've not yet seen crypto in in markets like this. So we're basically going to be questioning: Did we we see in 2018 play out again? Or we've got these very different global geopolitical tensions, different macro environments. So this is really going to be an interesting time to to watch how the crypto markets perform particularly and see how they perform relative to different currencies. I know we typically think about it in U.S. dollar terms, but I think uh, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out against some of the other currencies. All right. I think with that, we can uh, maybe switch gears here. So, Jason, we've, we've, we've seen and heard a lot of discussion on you know, stable coins and, and regulation of different stable coins. Curious to, to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I, I think what we're seeing is uh, continued focus on stable coins. And certainly when you think about uh, the president's working group and the executive order from the Biden administration to try and support innovation within financial markets, but also make sure that we have reasonable regulation, there's been a lot of attention drawn uh, to what's happening in Congress. And this past week, Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania had come forward and announced that he was seeking bipartisan support for a stablecoin bill that he's been working on. And I think it's really important to note that Senator Toomey has been a, a strong advocate for sensible regulation, but he's also looking at finding partnership across the aisle, which he may have a better chance to do because he's announced that he is not running for re-election. So I think he's an example of, uh, of a legislator who is principle-focused in trying to find solutions that will be workable and that can be agreed upon by people on both sides of the aisle. But I also think that the clock is running. And I think that he has a sense of clarity and purpose on this that might be able to uh, help him facilitate getting that agreement that's needed in the Senate. We also see that there's activity happening in in the House of Representatives, but uh, we know that the House is on recess, uh, so we won't see any real action for a few more weeks. But I'm positive uh, and optimistic that we're going to see some additional action. Hopefully they'll get something across the finish line. But I think all three of us were down at the consensus conference back in uh, early June, and we saw Senator Toomey, Senator Lomas and Gillibrand and Representative McHenry on a panel talking about stable coins, and they were all seemingly optimistic they may be able to get something done in this Congress. So yep. uh, hopefully that does come true. Are there any particular areas, Jason, where like we would benefit more immediately from you know some guidance or clarity, as we've talked about before? You know, stable. Not all stable coins are created equal, right? And they they look very different, and, and probably ultimately will be treated differently under the law eventually when it comes. Where do you think they'll go first? Where what makes them? What's the kind of the biggest bang for the buck right now? Well, I, again, if you keep in mind some of the guiding principles that have been included in in former publications, whether it be from Treasury or the President's Working Group, they seem to be focusing on uh, stable coins that can be used for payments and focusing on stable coins or digital dollars, if you will, that are backed by fiat denominated assets. And I think that's probably the area we'll see the least amount of friction because you're not talking about backing the stable coin with some highly volatile reserve, like we see with some of these algorithmic stable coins or other crypto backed stable coins. So I think their intention is to provide clarity as to how these how these tokens can be brought to market, how they can be used. They're also responding to what they they think will be the use cases. So I would prefer to see them take the approach of creating uh, more open space as opposed to trying to tighten the guardrails of of how one can be issued. But let's be candid. We also don't 
have rules on who can issue a stable coin or who cannot. So mm-hmm. they, there may be some focus around that, what type of entities or what types of attributes would be more acceptable than others. So I think we'll start seeing it probably around fiat backed, uh, typically in the, in the payment realm or uh, uses similar to payments. I mean, collateralization is an easy one to look at. You know, can you actually do more collateral management with stable coins? It's more easily transferable than some of the other assets that are used as collateral today. Yeah. Yeah. No, that absolutely makes sense. Jack, do you have, you have anything to add there? Nothing major. I'm just interested what this does to the rest of the stablecoin market, right? Because then you're going to have regulators say, this bucket is okay for large institutions to interface with in the United States. And then this bucket, you know, what happens to that other bucket, it's right? The, because there's clearly, there's a the lot of uncertainty of it all, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, and they're also different as well, right? Yeah. There's, you know, you have certain decentralized coins and even within the decentralized coins, stable coins, you know, there's a plethora of different ways that, you know, they're trying to maintain stability. Then you have, you know, less regulatory friendly stable coins and more regulatory friendly stable coins. And so like, how do those buckets play out? I guess we'll, we'll see, but I don't know if Jason has any thoughts there. Well, I, I think you're right. And I, I think we have to keep in mind, we're talking about, in this case, legislators proposing rules, regulators also define rules and implement rules. And I think what we're seeing is that there's a lot of collaboration across global regulators. There's a, an organization, CPS, IOSCO, who has been looking into how do they create standards for how they might uh, utilize or interact with stablecoins or create regulations. So when you think about it, we have this existing monetary system and we have national systems and we have global systems like global payment systems for example and how will these systems evolve in reaction to having clear rules around stable coins will that actually be integrated into those systems or will there be alternatives and it's very much like what we see today in terms of regulators who look and say that we've got a set of rules and these rules exist, they've existed for some time, and we should apply them to this new asset class, where quite frankly, it's debatable as to whether or not those rules should apply or if there should be new rules, because in fact, this is a a new ecosystem, a new type of economy, uh, which wasn't envisioned when the existing rules were written. So I think the same applies to when you think about tokens as would apply to cross-border uses. Yeah. And I think that goes back to kind of, you know, again, where they choose to focus initially, I think it it logically makes sense that that focus will be on what most closely aligns to the current system, right? So when we think about fully collateralized, fiat denominated, usually US dollar denominated stable coins, you know, that's the most closely aligned with the existing monetary system, any kind of regulatory framework that we have in place for that, right? And then this like algorithmic crypto money type of projects maybe sit on the the periphery for a bit, right? While they while they contend with, you know, how how that's going to look in the traditional space. And then of course, you know, what they're also spending a lot of their time thinking about is CBDCs, right? So, you know, to your to your point around the kind of what the future monetary system looks like, you know, the balance between stable coins and CBDCs and what, you know, the roles that they play, um, I think is another thing that we're we're definitely gonna going to be watching. Yeah, Ryan, I, I think you're absolutely right. And the one last thing I, I would say on this is that when you think about the comparison to the existing financial system and a central bank digital currency even, if you've got a stable coin which has reserves that are provably backed one for one, that's different than the fractional reserve banking system that we operate under today. So you could make an argument that there is in fact 
increased value knowing that there is a dollar for every unit of stable coin that has been uh, has been issued as in circulation, as opposed to having full faith and credit of a government or a central bank. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, where do we want to go next? Do we want to talk talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about DeFi and the sushi swap announcement? Yeah, sounds like a nice little change of pace here. Definitely more crypto focused. <laughs> more crypto focused. Yeah. So SushiSwap announced SushiXSwap, which is essentially kind of a, a cross-chain bridging solution and trading solution across um, multiple, you know, all of basically all of the major uh, layer ones. And I think this is really cool, right? It's like, you know, the, the, the best word that I could that I could think of for it um, in that, you know, we've we've talked a lot about kind of cross-chain interoperability, right? And and the ability to to bridge assets between, you know, or, or from one chain to the to the other. And I think that this is a really interesting implementation of that. We've talked about, I think in, in the past, you know, some of the technical complexities associated with doing this, of which there are many, right? And there are, are certainly, you know, security risks. But you know, if you are able to the extent that you're able to successfully do this. Um, you know, from a usability standpoint and a user experience standpoint, I think it's a major win. Um, and just from a, like, you know, when we think about the maturity of the infrastructure stack, you know, across the, the DeFi ecosystem, um, I think it's, it's a major win. I think every time we see these types of projects kind of advance, it's exciting, right? And it's something that we're, we're definitely, um, you know, watching closely. Jack, I know you've talked in the past about other projects looking to do similar things. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah. I do think that, you know, with this sushi announcement, like other DeFi protocols we have seen, you know, in the past trying to connect, you know, EVM to EVM chains. So we think of like Ethereum connecting to Avalanche, Binance Smart Chain, Phantom, right? And then all of its L2s. And that's that's what's happening here with this sushi X swap, where now instead of just trading from, you know, an, an ERC-20 to another ERC-20 or to ETH, you know, you can trade, you know, somewhat seamlessly, at least in theory, uh, across to to Avalanche, to to Binance Smart Chain, to another chain that is more or less, you know, pretty compatible with Ethereum. And I think that that's going to be sort of, to some degree, table stakes at some point mm-hmm. across the major DeFi protocols. If we're moving towards you know a DeFi world, right, where the borrowing and lending protocols will allow you to borrow and lend, sort of agnostic to chains that are easily connected with one another. Um, but of course, this doesn't include something like Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin's a you know UTXO chain, and it's unique and different from you know these EVM compatible chains that can just hook right into Ethereum. And so there is something like uh, you know this is an easier connection, right, to be making uh, than others. And so I think that there's some degree of like cross-chain connectivity across ecosystems that are not native to each other, but like sort of like cousins to one another. And then there's also probably a space for connectivity across those then cousins to other you know families. If we're and the, and the layers of technical complexity as you go and do that, like increase probably exponentially, right? As you start to think about how. That's yes, going. and then the you know uh, the risk uh, of. So it's like a lot. It's a prog- It's a progression. We're you know we're we're on a a, a journey here. Well, I I think it's good to sort of look at it, Jack. Kind of using your cousin's analogy, I sort of look at it like language. Right. So there's a common language here and that common language is used to write code in these uh, Ethereum virtual machine compatible chains. So if you can travel and speak the language, hopefully you'll be able to execute what you want to do. Now, there are different risks, as I'm sure you you talked about it before as well. 
you know, when we start this bridging, what's the smart contract risk look like? Or how do you verify that the bridging tool itself uh, can enforce the one-for-one -one dynamic? <clears throat> so I think we'll just continue to watch it. I think we've seen examples in the past where bridges have been compromised, attacked or compromised. But I think in the, in the long run, I think it's net positive for the Ethereum ecosystem for sure. And I say well, Ethereum broadly, the EVM ecosystem. It's the ecosystem and it's the users, right? Because like it creates it creates a whole different layer of optionality, right? When we think about kind of some of the, the core tenants of crypto and DeFi specifically, like it's important to be able to transact kind of across the different chains, right? Um, when we think about the true decentralization in its truest form, right? it never was a great experience to be kind of ring fenced in one, you know, one chain or the other, right? So being able to kind of have, you know, own an asset that you can take to multiple different chains and, and you know, leverage on that chain or use on that chain, I think is, is, is a really powerful, um, you know, concept that will likely see all sorts of new products and services kind of cropping up around that, I would think. Yeah. And I think Jason was sort of making this point. So specifically, Sushi here is relying on layer zero from the Stargate protocol, which I believe was launched like end of last year. Um, but there are explicit trade-offs happening here as well, where you're relying on oracles and relayers, to be honest, uh, in order to, to make those cross-chain swaps. Right. And so there, there's always sort of trade-offs and things happening. And, and maybe Parth is is back next week. You can <laughs> I know we didn't even we we, 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 we talked at the top about about how he's out and he's our he's our DeFi, our DeFi guy. Um, but he'll be back, he'll be back next week. I'm sure he'll he'll have a lot to say on this. So with that, I think we'll end it there. Thanks everyone for joining and we'll uh, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good rest of your week. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors, and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.